turn with me to Romans chapter 7. We are continuing our series through 1 John, but I would like to read for you Romans chapter 7. I'd hope to cover a little more in my sermon for today than two verses, but there was so much in those two verses that I would have been essentially two sermons. And so uh, rather than giving you that much information, uh, I will be focusing on simply uh, verses 8 and 9 of chapter 1 of 1 John. But reading from Romans chapter 7, and particularly I want you to to glean from this chapter the very real conflict that goes on within the life of a believer. That once we become Christians, it's not simply no conflict, no problems, but there is that war, that battle that yet rages within at times. That's the experience, not only of one who is a new Christian, but it's I believe, is the experience even of one like the Apostle Paul. I know you're familiar with the saying, misery loves company. Well, we ought not to simply take comfort from Paul's misery, but to realize this is not something abnormal. Now, what you go through in your Christian life and battling with sin is not something abnormal. That we all, even the Apostle Paul, fought that battle. But he is willing to fight it, to finish the course until the very end. Romans 7. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, even to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the passions of sins were aroused by the law. (coughs) We're at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment, 
deceived me, and by it kills me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that, that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. What is sin? Now that's one question I'm not asked very often. And apart from the Holy Spirit's gracious work in your life, you would avoid that little three-letter word sin just like you would the plague. Fewer and fewer preachers today are willing to call sin, sin. This is an obvious mark, I believe, of apostasy that we see in so many churches today. For God declares in Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. We seem to care more about offending people than we care about offending God and damning the souls of people whom we're called to help. And so from the pulpit or from counseling rooms, you will hear more acceptable words for sin, like the word mistake. You, like, you made an, an awful mistake when you yelled those profanities at your husband. An awful mistake. Or like weakness, another word that's used instead of sin. Friend, you have a terrible weakness with gossip. Such leaders in the church are just playing into the hand 
of the secularist who wants to do away with the whole concept of sin altogether. The sin of adultery today is called an affair. The sin of sodomy is being gay. The sin of drunkenness is referred to as alcoholism. The sin of selfishness is even condoned by calling it self-esteem. Why redefine sin as a mistake or as a weakness? Or why call adultery an affair and so forth? Well, because words like sin, adultery, sodomy, drunkenness, selfishness, these are all very offensive concepts to people because they communicate the concepts of guilt, transgression of the law of God and judgment, both inside and outside the church. Dear ones, the move is on to relieve people of the guilt and responsibility of their sins against God and against others. And they do so by two means. They seek to relieve the guilt and responsibility of people by two means. Number one, either by denying the guilt altogether denying that there's any reason for you to be guilty over that particular sin. For example, the the mother who thinks of herself and her own career to the point of putting her children into a daycare center and leaving her children there for other people to raise her children rather than herself for the simple reason that she is told, you've got to think of yourself. And so people try to ease the guilt and make her feel better that, that it's okay to think of yourself. It's okay to put your children in that daycare center in order to pursue your career. And so people deny the guilt. Or another way in which people try to relieve one of guilt and responsibility is to shift the blame to others. For example, the defense attorney, and we've seen it happen all too often, the defense attorney who seeks to gain sympathy for his client who is a rapist because he was sexually abused as a child. It was really the parent's fault. What do you expect this poor man to do? He's not to blame. It's the parents who are responsible. Well, that started at the very beginning in the garden. The woman you gave to me gave to me the fruit to eat. It wasn't me, God. It was the woman you gave to me. And so ultimately, it's not even the woman that Adam blamed, but God, the woman you gave to me. It's your fault, ultimately, that I'm in this situation. Furthermore, dear ones, the only hope any of us ever have of knowing true forgiveness and reconciliation, a real peace and love is through confessing our sin to God 
repenting of that sin and trusting in God to forgive us. You can try and relieve guilt due to sin in any way you want to, but the only way that you will find true peace is through God's method, the biblical method, the only method, confession of sin. Trying to relieve the guilt of sin is like trying to take out the nervous system out of a person's body. How would they know they were truly sick? How would they know what, what was wrong with their body unless there was pain associated with the problems in their body? And so, the guilt that God brings when we sin is for the same purpose. Something's wrong. You need to confess this as sin to God. Remove the conviction and acknowledgement of sin, dear ones, and you remove, listen closely, you remove all hope from the sinner. Remove conviction and acknowledgement of sin and you take away all of that person's hope. Genuine hope. Proverbs 28.13 says, He who covers his sins will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. A promise from God. You see, the Gnostic false teachers of John's time were cutting themselves and their followers off from all genuine hope of salvation and fellowship with God because they were excusing themselves from the responsibility and the guilt of sin. And I began by asking the question, what is sin? Well, let's be absolutely clear as to what sin is before we continue into our text today. The Shorter Catechism answers that question, and the children, I'm sure, know that from their own catechism uh, questions that they've been going through. What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. There are two parts to that definition that I simply want to make a few remarks about. And I'm going to look at the second definition first, the second aspect of the definition first, and then I'll look at the first aspect of the definition second. First, sin is transgression of the law of God. That is, when God says to Adam, don't eat of that fruit. And when Adam eats of it, he transgresses the law of God. Children, when your parents say, do not go outside, and you walk outside anyway, that's transgressing the law of God. That's what that first aspect of the definition means. Transgression of the law of God. James 4.17 is an example of transgressing the law of God when it says to him who knows to do good and does not do it, 
To him it is sin. You know the good that you should do, but you don't do it. You're conscious, you're aware of it, and you simply don't do it. We might even turn it around and say just the opposite or inverted. To him who knows not to do evil, but does it anyway, to him it is sin. Both of those are explicit transgressions of the law of God. And I think that's clear. That aspect of the definition is pretty clear to most people. They understand what it means to transgress the law of God. But what about when I'm ignorant of what God's law says? What about all of those things that I'm not aware of as to what God says? Are those actually... Can we actually call that sin? Well, that's where the first aspect of the definition comes into play. Sin is any want of conformity unto the law of God as well. Any lack of conformity to what God's law says you should be, whether you are aware of it or not, is sin before God. Probably you, like myself, have held to various convictions that you have come to realize that were wrong. Certain views about God. At one point, I did not believe that God was totally sovereign in my life. I did not believe that God was sovereign in salvation. I had a limited God as to that, that attribute of God. And thereby I had formed a God according to my own imagination. And I had violated the first commandment. I wasn't aware of it, but I had sinned through lack of conformity, want of conformity unto the law of God. And whenever that happens and we come to the conviction of what is true, we must repent. We must confess our sin before God. It's not simply okay to believe what is wrong about God or about anything else. It's sinful. And we must confess it as sin and turn from it and seek to know God as he has revealed himself in his holy word. This idea of want of conformity unto the law of God means to miss the mark of God's perfect righteousness that's expressed in the law. The old English word to sin was used in archery when one would take a bow and an arrow and would shoot the arrow at the target. And if the arrow fell short of the, of the bullseye, he, the, the archer was said to have sinned because it didn't hit the mark. See, that's what sin is in lack or want of conformity. It's not hitting the mark. For all have sinned, Romans 3.23 says. Notice how it defines sin. For all have sinned and fall short, have missed the mark of God's glory.
You see, even in the Old Testament, in Leviticus 4 and Numbers 15, there were sins of ignorance, which God's people were required to offer sacrifices for it in order to obtain God's forgiveness. Sins of ignorance. In Luke chapter 12, verses 47 through 48, it talks about two servants, one who knew to do the will of God and who received many stripes, but the one who did not know the will of God or the will of the master, who yet is receives stripes, not as many as the other one who knew to do the will of God or the will of the master. But nevertheless, he is punished. He is punished for his sin. Dear ones, rather than excusing your sin or redefining what sin is or blaming others for your sin, God calls you to confess your sin. God calls you to confess that sin, to seek His grace in overcoming sin in your life and to enjoy His forgiveness so that you may, the goal is, so that you may enjoy fellowship with God, the essence of your salvation, communion with the living God. Psalm 19, the prayer, the psalmist, with regard to secret sins and with regard to presumptuous sins. Psalm 19, verses 12 and 13. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults or sins. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Not only presumptuous sins, but secret sins as well. Deliver me from them, Lord. Last week, we considered how these Gnostic false teachers had sought to relieve themselves of the responsibility of their sin by falsely claiming sin does not break your fellowship with God. That's found in verses 6 through 7. Sin does not break your fellowship with God. They did not believe, as we mentioned last week, that sins done in the body could actually contaminate the soul and the spirit. The spirit, they said, was untouchable by sin, so long as one had this anointing of the Holy Spirit, which brought a true knowledge of God, that was all that was required. That was all that was important. It didn't matter how one lived in the body, the sins that they committed. Well, John's refutation of this false claim is simply summarized this way. No walking in the light of God's truth, then no fellowship with God. Notice it doesn't simply say, I think it implies this, but it doesn't say no talking in the light. No walking in the light is what it says. We must not only speak the light, speak the truth, profess the truth, but we must walk in the light of the truth. No walking in the light, no fellowship with God. Well, the second false claim that we're looking at today in the epistle of 1 John (coughs) 
is found in verses 8 and 9. 1 John 1, 8 and 9. <clears throat> Find these words. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. <clears throat> excuse me. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so the second false claim made by these Gnostic teachers may be summarized, sin does not exist in our nature. If we say that we have no sin, that was the claim. We have no sin. We have no sinful nature. <clears throat> this is a claim on the part of these Gnostic teachers to have either no inherited sin or to have arrived at a state where sin has been completely eradicated from one's nature by this anointing of the Spirit. So these false teachers first rationalize their sin away by saying what's done in the body can't affect the spirit. And secondly, they said, our hearts have no sin in them anyway. Now, I hope I don't have to belabor the point of saying to this congregation that that is heretical. Absolutely heretical this heresy was promoted by Pelagius and by the Socinians, Pelagius in the 5th century, by the Socinians in the 16th century, that we have no inherited sin, that a person can live a completely blameless, perfect life because there is no inherited sin. But this view was also held by one whom many call the greatest evangelist of America, Charles Gradison Finney. I was just in a bookstore in town, a Christian bookstore in town, the other day. It's not Stillwater's Revival, just to assure you, that's not where I saw this. Uh, but I was in a bookstore in town, and right there amongst the Orthodox evangelistic sermons, outreach tools, was Finney's book on revival. His biography, not amongst the cults, not amongst the false teachers, but right there with all the orthodox. Not only was Finney so far off with regard to sin, and I'll just give you a few quotes in a moment, but his old view of the atonement is warped is heretical as well. Finney states in his systematic theology, and I quote, We deny that the human constitution is morally depraved because it is impossible that sin should be a quality of the substance of soul or body. It is and must be a quality of choice or intention and not of 
substance. Page 185 in his Systematic Theology. Quoting from page 186, he says, But how came Adam by a sinful nature? Did his first sin change his nature? Or did God change it as a penalty for sin? What ground is there for the assertion that Adam's nature became sinful by the fall? This is a groundless, not to say ridiculous, assumption and an absurdity. And finally, on page 188, Finney says, This doctrine, speaking of the doctrine of original sin, this doctrine is a stumbling block both to the church and the world, infinitely dishonorable to God, and an abomination alike to God and the human intellect. Remember that phrase. And the human intellect. And should be banished from every pulpit and from every formula of doctrine and from the world. It is a relic of heathen philosophy and was foisted in among the, the doctrines of Christianity by Augustine. You know who Augustine's arch foe was? Pelagius, condemned as a heretic by the council, the third council of Ephesus in 431 A.D., a heretic. This is the position, this is the side upon which one who is called the greatest revivalist in America, this is his view of sin, of original sin. You see, dear ones, for Finney, Sin is defined as a quality of choice or intention, not of substance or nature. But the Apostle John declares, if we say we have no sin or no sinful nature, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. How could Finney deny what is so clearly taught in Scripture in verses like Jeremiah 17.9? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Or the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in Mark 7.21. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, Wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things, Jesus said, come from within and defile a man. I read from Romans chapter 7 of this struggle with sin that goes on within the Apostle Paul. This war, this battle. We read in Galatians chapter 5 about this same battle that the Spirit wars against the flesh. Dear ones, Finney denied original sin because that little phrase I told you to remember, 
because it did not seem to square with human reason. Not because he found it in biblical revelation, because it didn't square with human reason. After all, Finney would argue, how could God hold men responsible for sin when they are born predisposed to sin? How could they be responsible if they're already predisposed to sin? Finney fell into the Gnostic error of salvation by extra-biblical knowledge. Some other knowledge than what we find in the Word of God. And dear ones, that will always lead a person astray. Rather than salvation by biblical revelation alone. Dear ones, we must bring every thought into submission to the revelation of Jesus Christ in Scripture. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. What follows is interesting, though, from that particular view of Finney. Two things that follow from his view of denying original sin, and they are prevalent today. The first is the so-called age of accountability. That because children are not born in sin, they are not conceived with this sinful nature that they have, as it were, a safety net, a safety zone for so many years, five, seven, ten, wherever you want to draw the line, that they're morally neutral. They're not sinners. Now, I ask you, dear ones, beyond being clearly not taught in the Scripture, where will you find this idea of an age of accountability in the Word of God? It's absent, and not only is it absent, everything in the Word of God teaches contrary to such an age of accountability. They are accountable from the time they are conceived. From the time they, they begin to live, they are accountable. Notice, though, how that view will affect, I believe, one's training of his children. How will such a view affect a parent's attitude towards his children? Will that parent be as likely to pray for and with his children if he believes for the first five to ten years that his children are safe? Is that parent going to be beseeching the throne of grace daily on behalf of his children's salvation? To come to know Jesus Christ? To be saved from their sin? From that natural predisposition to sin? Will that parent seek to discipline misbehavior in his child, knowing the child is ultimately not responsible for his sin? How can you possibly discipline the child if he's not even responsible for his sin that he commits? On what basis? See, we discipline our children because they have sinned against God, first of all, and we represent God. And we apply the, the justice in a finite way, the justice of God to our children 
We apply God's fatherly correction and discipline because they have sinned against God. But that's not the case if you do not believe that children are born in sin. See, we administer baptism to our children, even as infants, because we believe they are sinners and in need of Jesus Christ, just like one who is 30 or 40 or 50 years of age. They are as uh, as much in need of Jesus Christ as the adult. And God has made His covenant with them, even as He does with adults. God saves children from sin, just like He saves adults from sin. And I would encourage you, dear ones, talking about your children, we must all, not simply you, myself as well, we must all be very careful not to excuse our children's sin, their misbehavior, because they are tired. Because they haven't had their nap. That can contribute. I don't deny that. That can contribute to misbehavior. But we do not want to make our children or cause our children to think that it's okay to misbehave and to sin just because they're tired. Just because they haven't had a nap. That they can throw things at their parents. That they can disobey. Because you know what a child who's taught that will become, he'll become an adult who doesn't believe he's responsible for his actions either. The second effect that Finney's doctrine denying the original sin has is in his view, the, the, the teaching of entire sanctification. Entire sanctification that man can in in fact, become perfectible. Now, there is a biblical, there is a biblical teaching of entire sanctification, which we'll look at in just a moment. But Fenney's view is that in this particular life, since man is not born with sin, since sin does not contaminate the actual nature of man, that all it is is a, a question of God assisting and man cooperating with God to help him make the right choices, the right decisions. Because, see, that's sin. It's your actual choices. And if you can bring your choices under control, you can be perfect. You can be perfect. Well, again, the Apostle John says, if we say that we have no sin... We deceive ourselves. The Gnostics were deceived. The Pelagians were deceived. The Socinians were deceived. Fenny and his followers were, were deceived. And many today are deceived into thinking that they can reach that place of perfectibility in their life, this side of heaven. Romans 7, again, is the struggle of all Christians. The Romish church also teaches that the saints 
have reached a place of sinless perfection where they actually performed more righteousness than God required of them. That's why they become saints. Because they did more than God even asked them to do or commanded them to do. They reached that place. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 5.23 where we find Paul speaking of this entire sanctification. And note very carefully the context and when this will occur. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely or entirely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless when? At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, notice, who also will do it. He will do it. He will make us entirely sanctified at his coming. The same truth is taught in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Entire sanctification will be like Christ when we see Him. Dear ones, beware of all the ways that sin and its guilt is excused so that you yourselves are not deceived and so that the truth does not abide in you. And I just mentioned several of the things that float around in churches today as well as in the, the world. <clears throat> Alcoholics Anonymous teaches that alcoholism is a disease. A disease, not sin. That is a way, a classic way, of excusing and condoning as much as they try to say in their 12 points that people are to take responsibility for this particular problem. It is excusing it as sin. It is relieving responsibility before God that it is sin and that it is something that must be forgiven. And if it's not dealt with, it can lead one to eternal damnation. So many things today you hear. Sins called diseases. Dear ones, there's no hope in calling drunkenness a disease. Because if it is, AA says it's an incurable disease. And the only hope that is offered for the one who is a drunkard is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to deliver him from his sin. That is true hope. He can be set free. Other types of ways in which people today excuse, relieve people of responsibility of sin. I have heard and read of those excusing women who have PMS, 
postpartum blues or depression of responsibility even in killing their children. What do you expect? They had postpartum blues. How do you expect a woman to act? Again, I'm not denying that there can be some inherited biological carryover from an alcoholic father to an alco- to, to a child. We know that with drug addiction, that can certainly happen to children, to infants. But even our predisposition to these particular things does not make us guiltless or irresponsible because we are predisposed to sin altogether. And yet God calls us to live holy lives. Sodomy is excused because, again, there are some studies that say that it is a biological predisposition to it. I don't believe that there is any firm evidence for that, but even if that were the case, sodomites must repent of their sin. They must forsake it, they must turn against it, they must fight against it with everything in their being. It cannot be condoned. It is a sin. There are those who say that there are environmental predispositions on the part of some to violence in which they were raised. And so they seek to, to release or relieve one of culpability because they are raised in a certain environment. How many times have you heard after maybe an act of violence, uh, the, the, uh, the gangs doing uh, uh, violence within a city, the riots? And how many times have you heard that's society's fault? Blame it on society. They're not excused from their sin. Dear ones, sin is in the heart of man. And all those outward acts of sin are simply the fruit of a sinful heart. That's where Finney's doctrine, denying original sin, leads. John's solution to this second false claim is for Christians to be continuously confessing their sins, as it says in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do not deceive yourselves, beloved, that you have no sin. Do not rationalize or minimize your sin. Rather, confess it. The word confess means that you are to say about your sin what God says about it. That it's wicked. That it's contrary to God's law. That you grieve over it and hate it. And desire to be delivered from it. Four things, just very briefly, about confession. Confession, first of all, is being absolutely truthful about your sins. It's being transparent. 
Not trying to hide from God your sin. It's not being defensive. Well, no one is perfect. That kind of an attitude. It's not blame shifting. Well, if he or she hadn't done that to me, I wouldn't have done that to them. It's being absolutely honest, calling an ace an ace and a spade a spade. It's saying that this is sin. Confession, second of all, is specific. It's not vague and general. Not simply, at the end of the day, God, I confess all my sins. Amen. Confessing sins means confessing sins of attitude, of heart, like pride and greed and unbelief, hypocrisy, discontentment, worry, fear, lust, and on and on. Confession of sins of the tongue, like irreverent speech, foolish jesting, profanity, gossip, slander, disrespect, ungracious words. Confession of sins of specific action, like theft, or procrastination or misuse of time, or failing to have regular personal and family worship. Being specific, that's confession of sin. Admitting that you're guilty. Third, confession is not the same as apologizing. An apology expresses regret that something has happened. But confession acknowledges one's own guilt and responsibility and seeks the forgiveness of the one who's been sinned against. God, first of all, and any others that one has sinned against. And that's the fourth one I just basically mentioned. Confession begins with God and ends with anyone else we've sinned against. Dear ones, 1 John 1.9 is a conditional promise. Notice, if we confess our sins. That's the condition, if. The promise is, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. However, do not assume that because you must confess your sin in order to be forgiven, that the basis or the ground or the reason for God's forgiveness is your confession. Your confession is a means to obtain forgiveness. Your confession is not meritorious. Your repentance is not meritorious. Your faith is not meritorious. Your sincerity is not meritorious. It is on the basis of Christ's work alone that you are forgiven. God looks to His Son when you come and confess. And when He looks to His Son, He says, You are forgiven. You are pardoned. There cannot be any merit in anything that we do. For we can do nothing completely, sinlessly. And yet... God does receive all of our good works if they are from the right motive of love to the right goal, the glory of God, 
and from the right standard, the word of God. Even though they may be tainted with sin, God takes that good work and purifies it through the work of Jesus Christ and Christ presents it to the Father as a good work. But only again because of the work of Christ. According to 1 John 1.9, dear ones, forgiveness rests upon God's character, not upon your works. God is faithful and God is just. God is faithful to his own holy character. That is why God forgives you. God is faithful to his own holy character. He cannot act in a way that is contrary or inconsistent with his character or his word. 2 Timothy 2.13 says that God cannot deny himself. He cannot deny his holy character. He must be absolutely faithful and consistent in all that he says, in all that he does, in all that he thinks. He must be consistent with who he is unlike ourselves. God is absolutely faithful. And since God has graciously promised to forgive those who humbly confess their sins, and I say this reverently, He must forgive. He is not bound to forgive by any law outside of himself, he is bound to forgive by his own holy character that is expressed in his own holy word. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my voice humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. God is faithful to his promise. If we confess, if we turn from our sin, he will forgive. He must forgive. He must forgive. God is bound to forgive. Not by a law outside of himself, but by his own holy character, he is bound to forgive. Now, that's not denying God's sovereignty. God has determined to do so. He must forgive in order to be absolutely true to himself. Now, who therefore will you believe when you sincerely confess your sins and yet feel guilty? Who are you going to believe? You're going to believe your feelings? Or are you going to believe God? You're going to believe what others say about you? Are you going to believe God? The only way, dear ones, to enjoy a continual assurance of faith is to build your assurance on the faithfulness of God, not your faithfulness. Second of all, God forgives on the basis that He is just. You see, dear ones, God is not only merciful in forgiving you of your sin, He is also just in doing so. You say, just? How can God be just in forgiving me since I do not deserve His forgiveness? 
justice. I thought justice was giving someone what they deserved. I thought God was merciful to me in forgiving me of my sins. Well, he is. But he's also just in forgiving you of your sins. Listen closely. God forgives you, his children, when you sincerely confess your sins because his perfect, inalterable, blameless justice and righteousness demand it since Christ has now paid in full all our debt of sin. God's full justice has been satisfied, dear ones. The cup of God's undiluted wrath was drunk by God's own Son so that you would not have to drink it. God is no longer your enemy. He is your Father. Every time you humbly bring your sin, great or small, every time you bring that sin to God, He looks at His sinless Son and smiles at His Son and smiles at you and says, You are forgiven. You are pardoned. And He receives you into His most blessed fellowship. Dear ones, this text teaches your forgiveness is due to His justice. It does not forgive the sinful child If God does not forgive the sinful child who comes countless times sincerely confessing that same sin, then God himself declares he would be unjust. Now, since it is impossible for God to be unjust, dear ones, he will forgive you. So again, let me ask you, who will you believe when you sincerely confess your sins to God and yet feel guilty? Your feelings or God? Others or God? Are you more just than God? God says the payment's paid. Are you more just than God? Do you demand more than God demands? You must cling to his promise, dear ones. He is just to forgive. Not only does God forgive the sins you specifically confess to Him, but notice He cleanses you from all unrighteousness. You see, when you come specifically confessing sin, He cleanses you from all unrighteousness. All of those many ways in which you fail to conform to the righteousness of God's law through your ignorance. He cleanses you from all unrighteousness so that you can enjoy that blessed fellowship with Him. Dear ones, in conclusion, here are two completely different worldviews. The worldview of the Gnostics and all who deny, excuse, rationalize, or minimize sin. They say denial of sin brings fellowship with God. Excusing sin brings fellowship with God. Minimizing sin brings fellowship with God. In contrast to the worldview of the Apostle John and all who acknowledge sin, John says confession of sin brings fellowship with God. 
The Gnostic worldview, dear ones, is founded upon extra-biblical knowledge and the fallible reason of man. The Apostles' worldview is founded upon biblical revelation and the infallible word of God. That cannot be broken. The Gnostic worldview leads to certain despair. But the Apostles' worldview, the Christian worldview, leads to certain hope. The Gnostics sought fellowship with God through their own wisdom. The Christian seeks fellowship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Let's pray. Our Father... We bow before you today, humbled in your presence because of your glorious justice and your abounding mercy. To realize that in that one sacrifice of Christ upon the cross, you fulfilled both. That both mercy and justice kissed. We thank you, our God, that you have given to us such a certain objective standard upon which to base our faith that we need not cling to our own feelings, that we need not be led by our own impressions, but that we are to be led by the Spirit of God in searching the Holy Scriptures and founding everything we believe upon those scriptures, even the fact that we are forgiven. Grant our God that your people will enjoy the fellowship that you have given to them through Christ. They would enjoy that fellowship not through minimizing their sins, not through denying their sin, but through honestly, truthfully confessing their sin and coming to the throne of grace to receive mercy. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. 
You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.